Mike Leach is back in the SEC more than 20 years after that two-year run at Kentucky. Introduced at Mississippi State head coach last week, coming to Starkville after eight years at Washington State. And he's back on the High Motor Podcast this week. Hey, Coach, congrats on the move. Great to have you back on the show. How did everything come together with Mississippi State last week? Did John Cohen come to Florida and that was kind of the extent of it? Or or were you still in Washington when that job came open? Well, no, he came down to Florida because I'd gone to Florida after the bowl game. And then I just called suddenly and said, uh, hey, uh, I wanted to come down there and talk to you. And I said, when? He said, this afternoon. And so we hopped on the plane, flew down here. We talked, had a good talk. And then uh, about a day and a half later, he called and said, uh, I want to come down again. And I said, when? He said, right now. And uh, and said, you know, if, uh, if it all works out, I'd like to get a deal done. So we talked again for a long time. And um and then uh, the next day I flew to Starkville. What did, what was your interest level in it? When you came down to that first time, did you know that this was a job that, that you really wanted and you were interested in? Or at what point did you kind of turn the corner from just listening to him to knowing that you wanted this job? Well, I was excited about it. I'm excited about, you know, and I love Washington State, and I'll always love Washington State. And I'll, I, I love what our players and uh, coaches were able to accomplish there. Um, but you know, I have a, uh, you know, I just don't want to miss out and, you know, there's so many, only so many bases you can cover. I wanted to check out a different region of the country. I was excited about some of the athletes, uh, that they produce in the state of Mississippi and Mississippi state has a great tradition. And, um, so I was excited about it. And I also felt like uh, John Cohen was a guy that would be great to work with and, um, and so we connected right away. What is your your process? You talked about your love for Washington State. What was your process of notifying your Washington State staff, your players that you're leaving? I know it's kind of a weird time. I'm not sure if they've restarted the semester up there and if the kids are back on campus. But did you feel like you had the opportunity to, to speak with those that you wanted to before that news was made public? Not like I would have liked. Uh, it started to leak out a little bit. The, the school wasn't in session. And... Um, and, uh, so it is hard. I mean, the hardest thing I've, I've had a very tough time ever leaving anywhere. And, um, so that was very difficult. And then I made sure I, uh, reached out to, or I reached out to our president who was out of town. And then I, of course I talked to our AD and then, uh, uh, but you know, it's, it's always hard. It's very difficult to leave. How is this this transition going to work logistically? I know that before you said that you are back in Florida. Uh, are you ever going to go back to, to Pullman to tie anything up, or are you going straight back to, to Starkville when you're done in Florida and you won't actually go back to Washington? I'll go straight back to Starkville, and then, uh, you know, as we get through this recruiting process and get things lifted off, then I'll go back to Pullman to kind of finish that deal out. Coach, I want to read you something here really quickly, and this is from Justin Ferguson. He's the Auburn writer for The Athletic. He tweeted, uh, after you took the job, he tweeted this, Mississippi State was reportedly linked to both Steve Sarkeesian and Todd Grantham before hiring Mike Leach. That's like trying to decide between two different kinds of vanilla ice cream and then buying a grenade launcher. Do you think that you're a grenade launcher? I don't know about that. That's nice of him to say, I think. Um, But... uh... I don't know. We throw a lot of balls, so hopefully we'll be able to launch some things. Let's go back to Washington State. So it was announced, I think it was uh, Monday or Tuesday, that Nick Rolovich leaving Hawaii for Washington State. Any thoughts on him taking that job that you, that you said you love and you love that school? Nick's a good friend of mine and does a good job of uh, throwing the ball. I think he'll do well there, and uh, and I you know I root for Nick wherever he's at, and did and rooted for him at Hawaii all year, and. Um, and at Hawaii, it was able, easy, easy to have late night conversations because of the time difference. And it still is, uh, cause there'll be another time difference, but, um, no, I look forward to talking to Nick and I'll certainly do anything I can to help him, uh, that I can, but, uh, he's a great guy and a great coach. So how does that work? Do you, do you ever talk with the coach who, who replaced you or vice versa? I mean, is it something like where you talk to Paul Wolf back, whatever that was 10, 11 years ago, or are you going to talk to Joe Moorhead? How does that work for you with those relationships? Uh, it varies. It varies. Uh, I mean, I'm willing to talk to nearly anyone. And so, uh, I'd be happy to talk, uh, uh, 
I don't know Coach Moorhead and didn't know Paul Wolf uh, very well. Um, but I'm I'm happy to talk to any of them, and and I wish them all the best because under the best of circumstances, college football is demanding, and uh, you know I'll do anything I can for a you know a fellow coach, you know, um, you know with regard to you know as long as it doesn't conflict with uh, uh, what we're trying to accomplish. But um, I'll uh, you know anything I can do to help a coach, uh, I'm happy to do it. Going back to when you said that when John Cohen first called you and visited you that first time, between the time that the job came open and that there was obvious interest in you for that position, did you reach out to anybody um, that had, had had the job or had a Mississippi State or knew a lot about the school to kind of give you a better idea of it, or was John Cohen the extent of the conversations that you had about Mississippi State? Uh, John Cohen was a lot of it, but I reached out to a lot of Mississippi uh state guys that had experience with, uh, that area, that part of the country and a variety of things. And, um, uh, yeah. And then I also, I recruited there and been through the state, uh, you know, several times as well. What was that? I mean, was it, was it feedback or what was that type of information like for you? And it, did it, did it kind of tip the scales at all? Or was it more of just reassurance that this was an opportunity that you wanted? Well, it's a very competitive first rate conference. Uh, Mississippi has always produced a lot of great football players and there's a great passion, uh, for, uh, football in that state. And they have, uh, great athletes that all, you know, go on to colleges all over and then also the NFL. Uh, so to be, to be in the middle of that was exciting. And then also a small town that's really got kind of a special identity and, and traditions. I was thrilled about that, uh, also. What has struck you the most? I know we're only, God, what, four or five days into it here. What has struck you the most about either this job, uh, the city of Starkville, the region, whatever, where is, was there anything that stuck out that made you realize that you definitely 100% made the right decision? Well, I think that's a work in progress as you work, uh, you know, you, you, you work hard and, uh, and you do it with a lot of partners, your coaches and your players. And of course the administration and, uh, you know, you just, uh, together work to become the best you can be. And, you know, so I think more decisions are made right than, uh, than are, aren't, uh, on the front end. And then, um, so I think, uh, there is that element of it, but I also think that, um, uh, what, what, I mean, it's, it's just an exciting place. Old places, uh, is, um, you know, uh, all Mississippi state football all the time. And, um, and of course they're great in other sports too. And I'm excited to meet those other coaches. And, um, you know, and, and the other thing is, is, uh, it's in a great setting. It's the cleanest town I've ever seen. It's unbelievable. You'll see people picking up a scrap of paper if they see it and just everything's just clean and nice. There's a lot of pride with regard to, uh, uh, you know, their place, taking care of it and, uh, and, uh, making it the, the very best that they can possibly, uh, make it. And the food there's outstanding too. You said just a minute ago that you, you'll talk to just about anybody. And when you said that, it we reminded me of when we, we talked over the summer and we, we kind of talked about that whole Tennessee process and you're willing to really listen to, to anyone, but is this before John Cohen called you, is this a, a job that you've had your eye on, or how does that work when you, when you're at Washington State? I mean, is this something that that's proactive with with you and people around you that you're looking at other jobs, or it's not until something like John Cohen calls you that you actually start thinking about Mississippi State? No, it it kind of surfaces and then you evaluate it because I mean, you know, the best place to be is some place that really wants you, that uh, really wants what you have to offer, because then. You know, I think the the teamwork and uh, and uh, the production's better if everybody's excited, uh, you know, to work with one another. When you take over a new program, what's your I don't know what's your timeline or philosophy? I guess for the transition, do you feel like like there's a year zero? Do you feel like it takes a certain number of years to really get everybody bought in, or is it you're here? This is year one. We're gonna win year one. You try to make it as good as you possibly can every day and then do the same thing the next day and you keep doing it and it doesn't, you know, try not to put any ceilings on anything, but just try to grow every day. Is there something that, that sticks out that's the, 
hardest part of transitioning to a new job, whether that's you said how hard it is to leave a job or whether that's getting buy-in from your new players? Is there only one or two things that really sticks out that's the hardest part of taking a new job? Well, leaving the previous one is, is tough, especially, I mean, if you like it. And, and no matter what, you're going to have some close relationships and some level of accomplishment. And then I think that um, going into the new one, you got to sell your vision. And then uh, early on, with regard to everybody's roles, you got to carve those out and um, illustrate to everyone what you want them to do and need them to do. And as they embrace those, then as you get new people in, like new uh, players and things, uh, then the guys in the front of the line can help the guys in the back of the line, that sort of thing. Last thing for you here, just looking at the very near future, the next you know week or two weeks or, or whatever, what are you looking at uh, in terms of your timeline? Are you jumping right into staff and recruiting stuff, or what are you doing logistically for the next week, week and a half? I'm getting as many coaches in town as I can. Um I'm doing a ton of phone work, um, uh, calling uh, some signees, some uh, players on the team. And then in addition to that, um, uh, preparing for the recruiting schedule and uh, talking to uh, some recruits. And then uh, I get on the road on Monday. Hey, Coach, always good to have you on. Uh, I need to get down to Starkville for a game sometime. Thanks a ton for the time. Best of luck with everything. Hopefully everything goes smoothly for you. Well, definitely, and I look forward to having you down there. Please welcome the the esteemed, the incomparable Jason A. Churchill back on the High Motor Podcast, back for the first time. Uh, you know, I don't even know when the last time we were on. We were just talking about this. I think it was like week one of the college football season, wasn't it? Like week two, maybe? Yeah, I think you fired me after week one. Um, so it's I feel like we were talking right when, <laughs> I think we talked about Willie Taggart. So I think it might have been like after the Boise game or maybe it was week two when we basically fired Willie Taggart and you told me if Willie Taggart's not your guy, I don't care what the buyout is, you got to fire him. I think it was around that time, wasn't it? Yeah, we did talk about that. So it was right around the time. But it was I think it was before he got fired, though. Is that what you're saying? Cause yeah, I'm it was before sure it was. he got fired because yeah, he didn't yeah. get fired until what week, I don't know, eight or nine or something, right? I think I don't think we've talked since. Yeah, I don't think we've talked since uh, like week one or two. So basically anyway, what, what we're saying now is they waited way too long. <laughs> Yeah, but they saved themselves. What if you're going to fire him week one versus week eight? You got to figure that's at least a million dollars, right? I I think what I would have done. So so if you you're saying that there's a million dollar difference, what I'm what I'd have to do as the AD at that point is say, okay, is the million dollars I might save by waiting a little longer, um, is that worth it? Versus what keeping him might do to my season and my my next coach and his chances to recruit and current recruits because they would have had to have lost a million dollars in merchandise in ticket sales in alcohol I don't know if this alcohol at Doe Campbell yeah at least a million dollars right you, you would think, think they would have if, lost if, that if all they saved is about a million dollars by hanging on to him whenever they did then what the hell were they doing what what are they doing like are you kidding me all right we're gonna do a couple of things here today and I think that that one of them fits well since we haven't talked on the pod since really the start of the college football season the other one also fits because you sir are just a baseball savant and this this astro story is really dominating sports right now really as much as any story can dominate and i mean, I mean it's mid-january we're talking here what it's thursday january 16th and baseball is plastered everywhere become because of this and and jason this this came up briefly very briefly when we were setting up a time to chat earlier today and because we talk college football on this show, let's turn that story into this. And the Astros, and you can speak probably more to this than I can. Feel free to elaborate more on this uh, this perception of the Astros right now. But you know, Chase Kitty and I were just talking on the last show about how Ed Orgeron, this remarkable evolution from this beloved football guy that nobody thought could actually be a big time head coach, and he's still the beloved football guy, but he just proved everybody wrong. How quickly that evolution happened and now how quickly at least from my my perspective as as a baseball fan not someone like yourself who actually covers the sport but how quickly the Houston Astros went from this this generally liked team who underwent this dramatic rebuild the whole Astro Ball stuff win the World Series now and basically in a period of whatever number of weeks everyone hates them so that's leading me to this very simple question Who's the most hated team in college football right now? And I'm not asking you for some sort of comparison because I don't think there is any sort of comparison for what the Astros have allegedly done. I mean, we'll see if this buzzer stuff actually actually did happen or not. But 
right now, like right this second, who is the most hated team in college football? I would still have to say Alabama. Just because they're always there, it's Nick Saban. He's kind of salty sometimes, um, although I, I like him, to be honest with you. And he's obviously very good at what he does. But I think because Alabama is still Alabama, you know, they finished, what, seventh in the final AP poll, I think. Um, and, and it was considered a bad year for them. So it's more of the Yankees factor for you. I mean, I mean, right now, let's, let's be honest. I think the Yankees are still more hated than the Astros, but it's more of the Yankees factor for you right now. In the, in the big picture, the Yankees are still the more hated team, but right now in Major League Baseball, now you have even Yankees fans because of the direct correlation, the Yankees having played the Astros in this past postseason uh, and losing on a walk-off hit in the final game of the series. Um yeah, I, I, and, and to translate that over into call it, yeah, I still think it's Alabama. I don't think um, I, if LSU won a couple more times, you know, and kind of became the new Alabama, then yeah. But I generally think fans typically just hate the team that's like, you know, think about in the NFL. Who's the most hated team in the NFL? Well, it's probably the Patriots. But I think for different reasons, right? Because you have a little bit of the Astros. You have a little bit of the Astros factor there. They, they didn't do exactly what the Astros, but I think it's more than just their winning, right? Certainly, but they've been winning now for 20 years. So you're saying even if they didn't do the Spygate stuff, we didn't have whatever this documentary recording is going on at the Bengals, even if they didn't do all that stuff, it would still be the Patriots. Yeah, I think probably. so. Yeah, I think so. You're right, though. The the, the, the deflate gate, all the, the recording stuff, the documenting stuff, and, you know, those videos that came out were, you know, incredible um, on the Patriots thing. But, yeah, I, I think that makes it 10 times worse. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when you win for that long and you're always there, people get tired of you and, and, and not just tired of you, but th- that means their team hasn't had that much success. Like I'm up here in Seattle and Seattle went to a Super Bowl, and the Seahawks fans hated the Patriots before they even went to and won the Super Bowl over the Broncos in January of 2014, long before they played the Patriots in the following Super Bowl and didn't give it to Marshawn long before that. So, um, so I think winning. So I think Alabama's probably still there. I think, you know, LSU will start to gain some of that with their success. I think a lot of people hate Clemson, don't you think? I mean, they've had success, and I think uh, I think Dabo Sweeney's rubbed some people the wrong way with some of his comments about um, players being able to sell their likeness and things like that. I think Ohio State ha- has garnered some of that because Urban Meyer and, and all that went down, off-the-field stuff, really. But because he's had a lot of success as well, and Ohio State's had a lot of success, I think Ohio State is up there too. I mean, how many, you know, I mean, years ago, Penn State with this off-field stuff that went there, there was probably some of that that just transferred. Oh, I hate Penn State because of what happened. Off the field, and it wasn't really the football team and certainly not the current football team's fault. Uh, Baylor, same issue. There was probably a lot of hate there. Um, But I can't really, like, how is it easy to hate, like, Oklahoma or Georgia or, like, only if you're their rival, right? Like, Let's go back to, so you said you said Clemson and Dabble, and then Ohio State, and obviously Urban Meyer is there. And I think that in most cases, at least in most cases of college sports versus pro sports, and maybe you disagree with me on it, I think that there is so much more dislike in college sports based upon who the head coach is. And going back to Ohio State, going from a guy that is so easy to, to dislike and honestly should be disliked for what he has done at Florida and Ohio State to be disliked, I think that's extremely fair to what appears to be a generally likable Ryan Day. So so for me, the most hated, I think that you have to, it, it, it ebbs and flows so much. I mean, if you would have asked me this question two years ago or even a year and a half ago when Urban Meyer was still the head coach of Ohio State, Ohio State probably would have been on the top of my list, but I don't even know if I would put Ohio State that high right now compared to, like you said, Clemson and Dabble. I think a lot of people have gotten sick of Dabble and not even the image and likeness stuff so much because I think that a lot of coaches have varying opinions on that and we've kind of almost become like numb to to when a coach disagrees with something or even after the whole Larry Fedora concussion stuff yeah they got a lot of play right away but then it went away pretty quickly whereas with Dabble I think his constant complaints uh, about them maybe this is just me because I hate when coaches overplay the hater card I mean like Jesus Christ you're Clemson you're Dabble Sweeney everybody's been kissing your ass for the last five years as as one of the more likable good teams in American sports and all of a sudden you play a soft schedule and you get treated how you should get treated very fairly and then you're screaming and whining about it so I think in the case of college football it seems like at least from my perspective, more of this hate revolves around who the head coach is. Like, look at look at Texas. I get really sick of Tom Herman. I think that he's 
a decent fit for Texas, but the Tom Herman hypocrisy and the, the general whole Texas is back thing, even though Texas didn't claim that initially, I think that whole mockery of it has made even Texas. And, and how much of that is Tom Herman? So how much of it is the head coach as opposed to actually winning or actual rivalry? Yeah, I think there's two sides to that. And when you get the combination of that, then you know that's when you get a team like Ohio State under Urban Meyer. Even I think there's a little bit of that at Michigan, where it's really just about the head coach because Michigan hasn't done a whole lot under Jim Harbaugh. But there are a lot of people out there that just don't like Jim Harbaugh, so they hate Michigan as a result. I get it, but totally they like Jim Harbaugh when he was at. I mean, Stanford was a very likable team. I mean, when Stanford beat USC, obviously that's different because it was what a forty point upset or something. But that was a pretty likable Stanford team and then all of a sudden the last couple of years of Jim Harbaugh's run with the Niners gets a little sour and he goes to Michigan and starts doing all his antics and everybody hates him so I mean it's, it's incredible how quickly again that can change right like I, I think about Oregon for example like um, I don't see anything about Cristobal to hate Right. Like he seems pretty good at his job. Doesn't seem like a like a terrible dude. Right. It doesn't seem like he's cheating. At least there's no evidence of that. So, um, you know, like the hate is because it's your rival. And I live in an area where Oregon is your rival. And if you're in Eugene, you know, Oregon State, yes, but Washington, because that's your your biggest rival to win. So you hate because of that. So it just doesn't reach the, you know, and obviously Chris Peterson's hard to hate, you know, um, it, it just doesn't reach the levels of, uh, it certainly doesn't reach the levels of Alabama because of the success and lack thereof when you compare those two. But yeah, I, I think if you hate the coach, you know, roll this over into college basketball, Andrew. Like there are a lot of people that are huge college basketball fans that hate Duke. But it's not because they hate Coach K, right? Like, how hard is it to hate Coach K? I don't know if it's that hard. I, th- I think Coach K rubs a. L- I don't know. I think Coach K rubs a lot of people the wrong. Maybe way. the and hard. Th- maybe the hardcore fans. Yes. Maybe yeah, the hardcore fans. Yes. But I think there's also more people in college basketball, especially with all the FBI stuff. I mean, I think Kansas, my alma mater, went from a generally fairly likable program and Bill Self from a fairly likable guy to. A lot of people hate Bill Self now. A lot of people hate Kansas, even though there wasn't anything more than like a couple of text messages. I think there are more coaches in college basketball that are hated. As I mean, there are more teams in college. Is basketball. there a team in college basketball right now hated more than Duke? Just in general, I think Kentucky. Really? Yeah, I think the John Calipari hate overwhelms what people hate. Ah, now, I don't. Now that I'm saying it, I don't know. It seems I, like that's died a little bit, and and maybe only because you know. They haven't Who's the most likable team in college basketball? Is it Gonzaga still? Uh, I'm not sure it ever really was. I think at times they've been the darling, but the most likable team in college basketball, it probably like changes. Virginia? I was, uh, Virginia was very likable, I think. Yeah, and I think, I think if you asked fans, they might confuse likable to um, the lack of hate. Well, or, I mean... After UMBC wins, everyone loved what UMBC does. So, it, it, again, it ebbs and flows so much there. And I want to I get to Washington here in a little bit because you, you brought them up. But one thing for you on this, was UCF the most hated team last year and two years ago without question? Hated? That's hard, man, because it, I talk about college football a lot. You know, you, you go to the office, you're hanging out with your friends, and you're talking about sports, and that's what you do. And it just really never came up, to be honest with you. I mean, surely in some circle, it really UCF never did. dominated. I mean, they dominated storylines for almost two years. But, like, the hate part of it, like, eh, okay, this is cute. They think they're national champs. Um, yeah, they're a good team. Uh, who have they beat? And then it really ends right there. It's like, do, does anybody really think that UCF at any point was – going to turn into a consistent year-to-year national threat? And because the answer's no to that, it's really hard to get to the hate part. So you feel like they didn't have enough. If, if they had, what was it, 2017, if they did that year after year after year and were screaming year after year after year for 10 years, you feel like at that point they just didn't have enough time to get up there. Absolutely. Because I think if you're not winning, nobody really cares. Like if you're media, like you, you mentioned Texas, you know, and that they kept claiming that they were back. I mean, if, you know, if they're back at, what, 8-5, and five, then – you know, enjoy your mediocrity, Texas. You know what I mean? Like n- nobody really cares in the end if you're just going to be eight and five every year. Um, you know, you have the one ten win season and think you're back and go away. Eh, fine. You know, whatever. I'm not going to pay attention to you. I, I think the teams that are hated the most and the teams that certainly that I dislike the most or have that kind of a, you know, add that kind of a connotation to are the teams that are good that threaten what you want to see or that threaten winning 
more than anything. Like if you told me that um, the Dallas Cowboys went out and won a couple of Super Bowls, I'm I'm disgusted. Are, are you kidding? Are you disgusted? And but what, how much of that is Jerry Jones? Or is well, that just the Cowboys? Now, in the current version of the Cowboys, very much Jerry Jones. Absolutely. And I know he's been the owner there for a long time. But when he first got there and they and he hired Jimmy and they won, yes, I hated the Cowboys. But it wasn't near the hate that it is now, and they haven't won in a long time. Like it's to, so, so that is Jerry Jones just wearing on people. He's just, you know, I mean, come on, the, the guy's a piece of, you know what I, so it, yes. But if they won, it would make it that much worse. You know what I'm saying? So the, the winning part, um, rivalries, um, and having a coach or, or a GM or an owner that you just can't stand are all parts of it. And I think, you know, you could see this bar graph kind of bouncing left, middle, right, left, middle, right, depending on, uh, you know, who's winning in, in college football, you know, um, I don't hate Duke, you know, I, I don't hate Duke. They win a lot and I don't hate Duke. North Carolina's won a lot and I don't hate them. Kentucky though. You're right. You're right. I, I think there was a point where I, I hated Kentucky and it was because they were winning and because I, I see the slimy Calipari and yeah, you're right. But the, the irony there, and we're going to move on here in a second, but the irony with Kentucky is that of all the stuff that has come out in the last couple of years, like Calipari hasn't been associated with really anything since the whole Derrick Rose SAT thing, right? Nothing concrete since then. And then obviously the UMass stuff, but honestly over that, I mean, that was 2000, that was a 2007, 2008 season. We're now 11 years removed from that. And everybody considers him a slime ball. But he can never get away from that though. He can never, he can never get away from it. I think it's completely overblown. I don't mind. I think some of the stuff that Calipari says is obnoxious, but I don't mind him as a coach. And I think that a lot of the criticism is unfair, but yet again, like he, he, he can't get away from that. Everybody is like, yeah, John Calipari, slime ball. Like you just said, everyone still perceives him as that. It'll never go away. Yep. Fair or unfair. It'll never go away. And he's obviously a great coach. Like, you know, they have a down year in East Top 10. It's kind of like Alabama's year, Nick Saban, where they finished like seventh and they were 12-2 and two and it was a down year, you know. The second thing, and this is what I referenced in the open, what I think fits especially well because we just haven't talked on the show for, for so long, really all football season, is things that get, didn't get enough attention. And you brought up Washington, and when I say didn't get enough attention, I'm, I'm meaning anything. Coaches, games, players, team seasons, whatever, anything. And it's always hard to to really say that because it's completely perception. I mean, I mean, it's impossible to get a pulse. I know it's so easy to be like, everybody's talking about this. In the case of the Astros, yeah, everybody is talking about this, but depending on what mediums you use, it's so hard to, to talk about this. But still, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because you haven't been on so long because you're a stone's throw away from the University of Washington, and even though Washington has 40 wins over the last four years, I didn't go back and look. I just assume that's the most over a four-year period ever for them uh if if not it's got to be a winner too shy and yet it seems like washington has kind of been a disappointment the last three years right i mean is is it a matter of chris peterson just being a victim of that that third year success and this is kind of ironic again because you're right there and yet it feels like over the last three years you've been yelling at me to get off of the washington bandwagon get away from oregon get away from the pac-12 i'm usually the one that's pumping them and you're usually the one that's telling me to pump the brakes so that's kind of the irony there, but it still feels like Washington after the eight win season was a disappointment for the third straight season. Uh, I think disappointment this season, sure. I think locally there was some disappointment because we all wanted to see that program take the next step, and they didn't take the next step. And you can, you know, obviously in terms of end season results, since they went to the college football playoff and lost what twenty one to seven or whatever it was, twenty four to seven to Alabama in the semifinal. Um, they've taken, you know, they've taken a step back. But I think after, with the exception of that, you go to the college football playoff in 16, 17 and 18 were steps back from 2016, but they've been pretty steady otherwise until until those seasons. I mean, so if year three, they win 10 games, year four, they win 10 games. And then last year or two years ago, they go to the college football playoff. I mean, completely different conversation here. Yeah, because now you're talking about the trending up. Right. And they've been trending down now. This is arguably the third straight season in which they've been trending down and yeah preseason expectations are, are just kind of a tough thing I thought that they've been a preseason top 10 team uh last two years this year fringe I think I had them like 13 or 14 but generally the perception of them as a top 10 or top 15 team they just haven't really met that and I get that's not their fault the preseason expectations of it but it still feels like an eight win team and yeah that 
that, that there's just more here because of Chris Peterson leaving and, and that whole storyline and him to uh, Jimmy Lake taking over and all that. But it still feels like Washington going eight and five just didn't get that much attention, even though we spent a lot of time trashing the Pac-12. It feels like a lot of that was spent on USC and Clay Helton and all of that. And we didn't actually look in your backyard in Seattle and say, Washington went eight and five. Like they should not be going eight and five. It was a weird year. It was definitely a down year. I've even called it a bad year. I think if you're at Washington and you don't win 10 games, um, you know, you take five minutes to look at, you know, uh, you know, a little, a little deeper to see what went on. Like, did they lose their starting quarterback in week three or whatever? And then not to make excuses, but you could understand why maybe they'd only lose eight or nine games. But that's not what happened at Washington in 2019. And not that it's an excuse, but clearly Chris Peterson wasn't the same coach in 2019. And now we know why. Um, he was really feeling it. Uh, you, you, you saw the press. You almost feel bad now knowing what he had talked about. I think he said – he started feeling that way after the, the Rose Bowl last year. Is that what he said, or or with the bowl? They played in the Rose Bowl last year, right? Uh, they were in the Rose Bowl uh, after the 2018 season. Yes, right, right. And I think I think when he retired or stepped down or whatever, I think his comment was he didn't enjoy that week as much as he should have. So he was feeling that way for 11 months, and now knowing what we know now, you almost feel bad for the guy. And I'm not like at all disparaging them, but it still feels like such an underwhelming season and we talk so much about these teams that don't match expectations it feels like Washington's kind of they kind of just got a pass for it if if Chris Peterson was coming back do you think we'd be talking more about god Washington just went 8 and 5 maybe, maybe? Uh, i think if they started the 2020 season relatively slow it would become a huge conversation hey they well, just not like a Chris just, Peterson hot seat conversation no, no, at all no no but like what the hell's going on like at 8 and 5 one season and you know now we find out that Peterson has been you know feeling this you know this way for a long time i'm not saying it excuses it but it certainly explains it you know because look they they went 10 and 3 and 10 and 4 and 17 and 18 after the 12 and 2 2016 and we're still thinking Hey, you know what? You know, every four or five years, Washington's going to have a chance to be in the playoff. Like, not necessarily go to the playoff, but they're going to have that kind of a shot because look, twelve wins, ten wins, ten wins. They have some things to figure out. Um, we'd have been thinking that again, and and again, they went eight and five, not five and eight. I think it's 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 hard to go. Okay, they lost five games. Um, the sky is falling, but obviously, there's something there that wasn't there the previous few years. There was no consistency. Uh, I've long thought that Chris Peterson, um, uh, and I love Chris Peterson. I I think he's a great head coach. I think there were some things about Chris Peterson, the way he went about uh, coaching his team that one, obviously, you know, and absolutely drove me crazy, but two didn't get the criticism it deserved. Um, I think Chris Peterson came to the university of Washington as a guy who was good for quarterbacks and I don't see it. So where did the did the criticism not come because Chris Peterson is just so I mean from all accounts I've never actually I think I talked to him on a teleconference but that's it. But from all accounts Chris Peterson is just a good guy. Like he's just a good guy on and off the field that does it right. Cares right. about his players, cares about his coaches, absolutely without question. How much of that is we don't want to criticize a good guy. He's a good guy. We don't want to give him any shit. Could be, but when you're when the the national guys are generally a little bit more willing to say, we love Chris Peterson. He's a great coach. He's got a chance to win ten or more games every single year. But and then go into whatever it is you don't like about what he does. Um, the he he came to Washington with this idea that he's going to be good for quarterbacks. You know, specifically quarterbacks, not necessarily just offense, but like he he's gonna you know he's a trick play guy. He you know, and he's gonna get cerebral quarterbacks and turn them into something that otherwise they couldn't be. And it looked like that was exactly what was gonna happen because of the Jake Browning. Jake Browning comes here. He's he starts as a freshman, first true freshman to start. Um, you know, at the University of Washington, has an okay year for a true freshman in his sophomore year, which was 2016. He had the big year numbers wise, and then Browning kind of goes downhill from there. And he wasn't terrible, but he wasn't anywhere near what he was in 2016. And we just kind of ignore the fact that, well, John Ross was gone, and then a year later, Dante Pettis is gone, and offensive coordinator leaves. Um, it, you know how this goes. When an offense struggles, when a team struggles and an offense struggles, the fan base wants the offensive coordinator's head. That's what happened in 2015. 
Jonathan Smith was the offensive coordinator, and nobody liked Jonathan Smith. And then 2016 happens, and nobody talks about Jonathan Smith. It's almost like a good umpire in Major League Baseball. If he's doing a good job, nobody's talking about him. Well, yeah, it's like the long snapper or the holder. Nobody gives a shit about who the long snapper is, and suddenly he botches his snap in the NFC Championship game, and everyone wants to run out of town, and he doesn't play in the NFL anymore. Exactly. So then Jonathan Smith goes to Oregon State, and now all of a sudden we're talking about, we're, we're talking about the offensive coordinator at Washington again. Maybe we're not even talking about Jonathan Smith enough. I mean, what he's done at Oregon State in two seasons, maybe that should be another conversation here. Unbelievable job in two years. I went to uh, I went to Corvallis in November and saw uh, – now I can't remember who they played. Arizona State, right? Yes, Arizona State. Ari- that, was a, that, was a, that was a fantastic game. And I think the one thing I've learned – I haven't gone to tons of college football games outside of the University of Washington just because, again, like you said, it's in my backyard. But seeing that game and from the perspective that I saw that game and the folks that I was around at the time to be able to kind of bounce thoughts and ideas, um, Oregon State is incredibly talented, at least relative to what I expected to see when I rolled in there. I understand they didn't win nine or ten games or anything like that, and they weren't great in Pac-12 play. They're obviously heading in the right direction. I think you're right. We're getting off topic a little bit here, but you're right. Jonathan Smith probably you know deserves to be talked about a little bit more. But getting back to Washington and you know the Pac-12 in general, Chris Peterson had a down year at 8-5, and five, and if we were headed into 2020 and Chris Peterson was still the head coach, it would be like, all right, what's he going to do to get back to 10 wins? That's what we'd be talking about. With Jimmy Lake now as a head coach, I'm thinking the same thing, though. People think it's going to be like this step back, even from 8-5, and five, because it's a first-year head coach. You, Andrew Daddy, tell me why the Huskies won 10 games in 2017, won 10 games in 2018, and won 12 in 2016 instead of 9 or 10. That defense, right? Who's been the basically the quote-unquote head coach of that defense, Jimmy Lake, the guy that's now the head coach. Well, and they got gutted after the – because, right, wasn't that the exodus after the playoff? That was when the, Some the defense it, yeah. just got completely yeah. gutted. Some of it, absolutely. You know, they lost uh, Sidney Jones and Kevin King on the back end, uh, Buda Baker. Um, you know, they, they lose guys on the defense every year because it's been a good defense, specifically at the back end. Um, you know, Taylor Rapp after last year, Byron Murphy after last year. But they just keep producing these guys. And, you know, you're going to have a down year or – so and they really never did have a down year were they as good in 17 18 and 19 as they were in 16 no were they as good in 19 as they were in 17 no but they were still top three in the pac 12 and now they got a bunch of guys coming back and returning so um you know but to get back to your original you know point the the hype about washington just there shouldn't be any hype about washington too many you know like you said eight and five season after 10 and four after 10 and three after 12 and two technically that's a downward trend and they have a first-year head coach. Let's just put them in the wait-and-see pile. But the Pac-12 in general, people were all over Utah and all over Oregon, including you know one of my favorite guys in college football, Joel Klatt, thought that Utah or Oregon would have done well in the college football playoff. I do not believe it. I do not believe it at all. I don't believe Washington, after the 2016 Washington team, I don't believe we've seen a top-five Pac-12 team. I, I truly don't. And you can no, make an so argument. Who would, it, who, would it, who would it have been? This year with Oregon or Utah. There were folks that were like, if Utah wins the Pac-12 championship game over Oregon, that they should have. There are a lot of folks out there arguing they should have been in over Oklahoma. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to watch Oklahoma, and I'm probably going to watch Oklahoma get throttled and still believe that Oregon and or Utah gets beat worse. I just, you know, I don't think you can sit and watch Oregon, Utah in 2019 and then watch Oklahoma or Ohio State or certainly Clemson or even Alabama and say, yeah, that Utah team can hang or that Oregon team can hang. Are you kidding me? What about 2020? I'm sorry, I'm going back here. So Washington made the playoff in 2016, right? And that was the year that, that USC and Colorado. I mean, Colorado was... was Colorado was pretty good. there. was legit. So they honestly, over over the last... Now, four seasons, the best team out of the Pac-12 in that time was Washington in 2016. We can agree with that, right? Was the second best team Colorado from that year? Uh, maybe you, maybe maybe USC from that year. Okay, so then are the top three teams over the last four years you, um, USC, Washington, and Colorado from that season? Because it sure as hell wasn't 2017. Um, I. I th- I think you could put this year's Oregon and Utah teams up against that Colorado team and against that USC team and come out the other side thinking they were better. I think that's But there's an argument to be made that over the last four years, the three best teams over those entire four years were all in 2016. Yes. That's bizarre. 
Yeah. Yep, it is. Think about what's happened at USC since then. And and this it's not even all Clay Helton. This is not even all Clay Helton. Look what they look what USC um look what USC did offensively this past season when they had Slovis in the lineup. Like Well, that's why everyone's all over Graham Harrell. The job that he did with the personnel that he had was incredible. He what, thirty to nine touchdown interception. I think his his quarterback rating, which in college is weird, but you know, almost hundred and seventy, uh seventy two percent completions, uh thirty five hundred yards, and he missed a lot of time because Fink and Daniels got a ton of time and they threw hundred and thirty they made made hundred and thirty attempts and made start like if Slovis is healthy the whole year. Because eight and five doesn't look that bad, and I understand USC has big time, you know, uh, expectations. But um, SC has just gone down here, and there's a lot of explanation for it. And again, it's not all Clay Helton. They they should have changed coaches. Don't get me wrong, but USC not staying where they were or getting better since 2016 is a big problem for the Pac-12 in general. You haven't had SC in this conversation since 2016, and you don't get to say, well, Oregon beat USC or Utah beat USC, or they lost to a really good USC team. You don't have that. SC is supposed to be the uh, the Duke in basketball to the Pac-12's football. That's what they're supposed to be, the team that's there every year, and they haven't been. So it's really difficult to get a really good gauge on where the Pac-12 is and where it's supposed to be because the team that's supposed to be their cowbell isn't there. That's supposed to be the guy, well, hey, what about the Pac-12 ding, 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 USC? And they haven't been, and they haven't really been for a long time. So I think you're right. I think you go back to 16, Washington, USC, Colorado, at very worst, three of the top five teams we've seen in the Pac-12 the last four years. No, that's a good point. I didn't really think of it that way because if you – I mean, there's so much chat about the SEC and whether or not they're actually as good as everybody thinks they are. I think they are. But but you can go back and look at it, and if you take out – and it's just an incredibly stupid, pointless, meaningless game to play. But if you take out that Alabama team – and I know that's not exactly what we're doing here with USC. USC was so good for so long. They were like the Alabama back, you know, 12, 15 years ago. But – if you take out that reliable team that you're the again, like you say, you're supposed to be the team that that goes ten and two. You're supposed to be the team that goes eleven and one. That is a win away from from representing us in the playoff potentially. If you take away that team, the conference. I mean, look at take away what yeah Baylor was good this year, but take away what Oklahoma has done the last three years. What on earth does the Big Twelve have to show any time over the last three or, four, or during the playoff entire playoff area? You take out Oklahoma from that equation. You make Oklahoma what USC has been: ten and two, nine and three, eight and four, whatever they've been. You take Oklahoma out of the Big Twelve, and they're the Pac twelve. Really, really, they're the Pac twelve. I understand that Washington did they did make a playoff in season, but generally, that's what we're talking about. You take Oklahoma away from the Big Twelve, and they're the Pac twelve. If you make Oklahoma nine and four team every year instead of the eleven, twelve, thirteen team win that they've been, they're the Pac twelve, and that's why the Pac twelve is the worst in general, the worst of the Power Five conferences. You you, you look at top to bottom, the ACC was awful this year, and there have been other years where Clemson has really been the only really good ACC team, but Pac twelve doesn't even have that. Hey, one thing for before we go here. Another thing that kind of bouncing around as I'm thinking about coaches here that might not have gotten enough tension. How about Cincinnati hanging on to Luke Fickle? After two 11-win seasons, he has like, what, a decade, 15 years of high-level Power 5 experience under some highly respected coaches, generally. And he's coming back for year four. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, he wasn't even mentioned as a real finalist for any job. And yet, it doesn't seem like we're talking... I mean, this would be like if... P.J. Fleck did what he did back in, that would have been 2016, if he did that again and then came back to Western Michigan. I, I get that Cincinnati is a better job than Western Michigan is, and it's not the worst job, and Luke Fickle is paid pretty well. But there's well. still another big step for him to take if he wants it. Right, and and they're able, like, it doesn't even seem like maybe he got an extension. I didn't even look to see if he got an extension after after this past year. But we're not even talking about, like, Luke Fickle has a chance to win 11 games three years in a row where I mean, what, what did twenty jobs I think changed in, in the FBS, and not sure how many of them were Power Five or even considered better than Cincinnati. But I would imagine there are there are probably eight to ten jobs that open that are better than Cincinnati, and it didn't even seem like Luke Fickle was really 
mentioned. It was more like, yeah, Ole Miss is open. I wonder if Luke Fickle could be a finalist there. And he might have been somewhere. I don't know. I wonder if he's smart enough not to go to an SEC team that doesn't have a chance to beat Alabama. Because Ole Miss does not have a chance to consistently beat Alabama. Yeah, and maybe that becomes a conversation that that Chase and I have had a lot this season of of where would he actually – I mean, there has to be – we talk about all the time – these coaches that are up and coming, there actually has to be a job for them to take. And he's kind of been mentioned as a potential candidate, like if Mark D'Antonio were to get fired or step down, something like that. I mean, Ryan Day is not going anywhere. And even if he did, I don't even know if, if Luke Fickle would get another shot at Ohio State, maybe. But anyways, it still seems like we have this this youngish coach with incredible experience, now three years as a head coach. He's won 22 games the last two years, and he's just coming back for year three. Like, why are we not talking about this? I wonder if part of this – there's two things that first come to mind for me. One, maybe his agent told teams not this year, and so we just didn't hear about him. It's entirely possible. Maybe he just was not interested in leaving Cincinnati this quickly. I don't know. Um, two, maybe there were just so many other good candidates that Fickle just didn't come up. Is he a bad interview? Does he – maybe – I mean, you know, think about, and I don't mean good candidates like this is how successful the coach is and how successful the coach can be, but when there are other easy fits to make, I mean, think about, um, think about Ole Miss, like Missouri think, or something. Like, is I think it's a better job than Cincinnati, but like, but how much better? Eli Drinkowitz? How much better? What? Why would Luke Fickle consider Missouri? Like, think about it. Think about the same way that I just mentioned Ole Miss and Mississippi State. Can you go to Missouri? You don't think that Luke Fickle needs a Missouri to get to the top tier? You think he can go directly from Cincinnati? Why couldn't he go from, and and the job's not available, but I'm going to use Florida. Why couldn't he go from Cincinnati to Florida? So Florida's 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 a pretty damn good job. I mean, you know, uh, Florida State was in a little different position because they come off a couple of, you know, the the struggles with Willie Taggart. But, um, you know, where did they get their coach? Where where did they get their new coach? Sorry, I'm look googling to see if Luke Fick got an extension. He didn't. He did after this yeah. past season. So you know, I mean, Florida State's still a pretty damn good job in college football, right? I'm not saying it's as good as Florida. I'm not saying it's better than Florida, but it's a pretty good job. And where did they? They didn't get their head coach from a Power Five school. So why couldn't a guy like Fickle? like, for example, with three 10-plus win seasons in a row, be the next head coach at a place like Florida. Just for example. Maybe maybe he can do that. Maybe he can be – maybe Jim yeah, Harbaugh – you make a good point. Fine. Maybe, maybe Jim Harbaugh goes back to uh, the NFL after this next season and Michigan is open, and it's something oh, better Jesus than even Christ. Michigan State. <laughs> and then he goes from Cincinnati to Michigan, right? I don't know. Like, like, if you're fickle, you have to think, okay, I'm pretty good at what I do. I could take advantage of it now and go to Mississippi State or Ole Miss or, you know, whatever. Or I can wait another year, maybe even two – and see if a better job opens up. A job that I'm going to stay at for the rest of my career. Or at least college career. You won this exchange. No, you make a good point. You really do. And I, I think maybe it, it's also hard. I mean, how many how many guys in college football, like how many college football insiders actually know? I mean, the number of guys that are reporting these moves, like Brett McMurphy and um, um, I mean, who well, Adam Rittenberg, like those type of reporters, Pete Thamel, how many of those exist? Like 10? Yeah, like Penn, maybe 15 at the most. So those are really the only guys that actually know, like, if Luke Fickle wants to leave. I mean, there's been so much talk around Billy Napier. Yes, he he wanted to stay at Louisiana. No, he might have been a candidate at Mississippi State, blah, blah, blah. But there aren't that many guys that actually know that. And I, I am certain that I'm not one of those people. I don't think that you're one of those people either. So we don't even know if, if Luke Fickle wants to go to another job. So it's, it's very easy for us to sit here or me specifically, because I just lost this argument and say, why wouldn't he want to leave? But maybe it's more, maybe I need to rephrase it and maybe say, like, it, it's it's not common for a coach like Luke Fickle with his resume and what he's done at Cincinnati, cleaning up Tommy freaking Tuberville's mess to be coming back for a third season to win 11 games again. I mean, how many guys, I think he's still under 50. I'm almost positive he's still under 50. He's got to be. How many guys under 50 have won 11 games in three straight seasons as a G5 school and then come back for even a fourth year? I, it can't. The list can't be that big. It probably is. He's 46, by the way, 46. I, I was looking that up as you were saying it. He's 46. And, yeah, it, you go to Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Michigan State, whatever it is, and you pretty much double your salary. I think he's making like $2.5 million, Fickle is. Um, maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that we or really nobody else knows about. Um you know, why he wants to stay in Cincinnati. Maybe there's something, you know, personally going on where it, or maybe like you said, maybe there is, they have a read on an opening that, I mean, for example, like Cincinnati's AD just to the USC job. 
I'm not suggesting anything, and my God, we're not reporting anything by any means, so don't get any of that impression. But Fickle to USC. Maybe, maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe, this stuff happens. Like it, it, This happens. Maybe there is some sort of Mike Bone and Luke Fickle got blasted over whiskey uh, in Fickle's basement one night, and are like, hey, I'm taking this USC job. If I fire Helton next year, like that, that happens. I'm not saying that happens here, but we've we've seen that happen over college football history. That there are these handshake agreements. Yeah, maybe there is something like that. By the I don't way, know. what are the chances that you think uh, Bone and Fickle did you know throw back a bunch of shots in his basement one night? Well, what do you think the chances are of that? Ten percent, seventy percent, hundred percent. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. All right. Specific, well, one of the, I don't know. I don't know who has a better basement or any you know, know man cave, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that just happens. That makes me want Luke Fickle to be a coach uh, of one of the teams that I follow the most. You think uh, can Fickle take a step to Michigan State or a school like that and then go to the NFL? I don't know. The NFL is that the path so for Fickle? Read. Yeah, NFL stuff is so hard to read, and I think that it that used Matt... to be harder, though, you have to admit, because now we're seeing head coaches go there and actually have success, whereas before it was so hit and miss at best with the college coaches going to the NFL and struggling. And, then... and I mean, the money has changed so much. There's a lot of talk about how the lifestyle and the demands of being actually, some people have said this. I don't know how this is possibly true. The, the lifestyle and what you have freedom-wise is actually better in college as a head coach as opposed to an assistant. Usually life as an assistant coach in the NFL is better, but vice versa for a head coach. The money is not even really that different. Yeah, like Matt Rule got paid by the Panthers, but he was still doing pretty well with the Baylor, and he probably could have gotten any job in America. If Mike Leach is getting $5 million a year. So you're right. The money's not that different. It's really not. Because Mike, Le- Mike Leach, good coach. I have trouble putting him in the good pile. You know what I mean? Better than average? Absolutely. Entertaining as hell? Absolutely. A complete douchebag? Absolutely. He's making $5 million a year in Starkville. And he's not even and he's not even good. I should have held Mike Leach until after this. I should have brought you on with him. See how he reacted to that. He probably won't even listen to this part of the pod anyway. He probably won't even listen to his part of the pod anyways. Jason, this was fun. Good to have you back. Let's do it again soon. Thank you very much. Appreciate I it. saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter because deep inside the feeling still remained the same. We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces